just have walked in or just joining us online, welcome to you as well. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here. And today we are in our series on the book of Acts. Um, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, I actually plotted out the rest of the book. And uh, we will be wrapping up the book of Acts sometime in September. Uh, so, yeah. So, it'll be exciting. I can't remember how many weeks it actually is, but uh, similar to our John series, I think it's around 50 or so. Uh, we're in week 26 right now. Uh, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 16. Um, and if you are newer to our church, this is kind of what you should expect as the norm. Uh, if you think about um, Bible teaching or worship together as like a meal, uh, kind of just walking our way through a book of the Bible is sort of the meat and potatoes, normal way we uh, typically do things. But once in a while, we'll have some, uh, you know, a nice appetizer of a topical series here or there, uh, a little dessert of Advent kind of thing. And so uh, you should expect uh, this is the kind of thing that we will typically do. And as I said earlier in the announcement, well, what we're going to do in our small groups is kind of dive deeper into what we cover on a Sunday morning. Uh, if I could give you my notes, which I could give you my notes, there's a few things in here that have uh, strike through. I don't know if you use that when you uh, set up documents that I would, would be interesting to talk about, but that uh, just don't have time for uh, in my allotted 75 minutes for sermons. Uh, just kidding, 35. Um, <laughs> if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 16, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is verse 11. Uh, and so what we covered last week is what is known as the Macedonian call. Uh, the math, if you ever hear that in a Bible uh, sort of setting, just know that the story we covered last week is that story of uh, this moment when the Apostle Paul is called off of his plans, uh, off of his trip where he had planned to sort of revisit all the places that he and Barnabas had gone. And so instead, Paul sees this vision of a man from Macedonia, uh, which if you're wondering, is a region in the ancient world that kind of spans uh, northern Greece and to what is known in Europe as the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, so it's a region of the world. You know, the world was broken up into different regions than it is now. Uh, but that's basically where Macedonia was. And so after experiencing this famous vision of a man of Macedonia, uh, which interestingly enough, based on the story that we cover this week, uh, some scholars believe that maybe it was actually a woman and Paul didn't realize it until he got to where he's going to get to today and meets uh, a woman named Lydia. Um, but this man of Macedonia implores him, begs him, asks him, come to Macedonia, to Europe. Uh, and that's where we pick it up in verse 11 of Acts chapter 16. So I'm going to just read a few verses at a time or chunks at a time from Acts 16, verse 11, all the way through verse 40 today. So this is Acts 11, sorry, Acts 16, verse 11. Uh, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And following, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. And if you remember, some days means a while, uh, a, a good long time. And so what we see is that the first night in this little extra trip that they are talking about here, that Luke is writing about, they lay over at this island called Samothrace or Samothraci, or there's a bunch of different ways to say it. And then from there, it's kind of smooth sailing to Neapolis, which is the port city of Philippi. And then they walk about eight miles to get to the city of Philippi itself. Uh, and I think some of us in this room have been there. Uh, so you can ask Trish about that. Um, but Philippi was an ancient town. 
even at the time of this writing, it was renamed in 356 BC uh, by Philip II of Macedon after himself. So Philippi is named after a guy named Philip. Uh, and so with the expansion of the Roman Empire, it became a Roman possession, not a colony, but a Roman possession in about 167 uh, BC. Uh, but kind of its claim to fame, its greatest moment came from the fact that it happened to be the place where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian uh, defeated Brutus and Cassius in a battle uh, in the Second Roman Civil War around 42 BC. So this is a decisive moment in the history of Rome. Uh, and it's from this kind of, uh, this event that Philippi uh, gets the character that it has as a city uh, in Paul's day, uh, because in, in this, in its role that it played in that battle as a city, uh, the city was awarded the status as a Roman colony, uh, which is going to actually be important today when we see Paul talk about his citizenship. Uh, so it's a, awarded the status of a Roman colony, and that means it answers directly to Rome and the emperor itself. Uh, Roman soldiers are encouraged to go and retire to Philippi in this time, and so citizens there were exempt from the provincial taxes that other Roman possessed uh, cities would have had to uh, deal with. And so Paul and the other three that are with him are now in for uh, kind of a cross-cultural missionary experience. How many of you have been on a short-term missionary trip or a trip somewhere that's completely out of your culture, maybe a different language? Anybody? Yeah. So it's, it's a wild experience. Uh, you know, usually you, grow, you go with a group of people and you come back much, much closer to those people because of the experience you had. Uh, the two that come to mind for me, uh, I've been on trips to Costa Rica and to Argentina. Uh, and so those trips were uh, amazing, life-changing. And um, th that's the kind of thing that is happening here. Except they didn't get on a plane. They got on boats and walked. Um, so here's what's amazing about this moment. Rome doesn't know it. Like the Empire of Rome doesn't know it. But Christianity is stepping into Europe in this moment. And, and the... The true king who rules and reigns over everything because he's been given all authority, Jesus, is about to step into the greatest empire in, in Europe at the time, the greatest empire in the world, and win people to himself. This is a really momentous occasion, right? Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, one commentator, wrote this. How little the world knows of the divine movements. On the day when Paul hurried from Neapolis, over the eight miles up to Philippi and came into the city and made arrangements for his own lodging. On that day, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of her flag and the change of the world's history. So what we see from this little section of Acts is some really sort of valuable insights on being on mission with Jesus as we plant the flag, so to speak, of the kingdom that is coming in the empires of this day. And I just want to make a caveat. I know that that like empire planting flag language carries some baggage with it because of the Crusades. Uh, and that's not what we're talking about. We, we actually discussed this, I can't remember, a year or two ago when we talked about a Christian view of war. Uh, and, and the Crusade view of war is not what we're, what we're advocating for. Uh, we believe the kingdom that is coming is about love and persuasion, not about force and, and ruling over people and oppression. So I just want to make that caveat, even though we use that language of kind of kingdom and empires and planting flags uh, in uh, some, sometimes when we talk about this kind of thing. 
So let's keep going. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Okay, so here's what we've got going on here. This missionary sort of foursome, uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they go to the riverside on the Sabbath instead of a synagogue, which would be normally their custom. They're Jewish, but they go there because there's no synagogue in Philippi. Well, at least two of them are Jewish. And so according to Jewish tradition, which is why Paul, why Luke says they supposed, right? According to Jewish tradition, uh, there had to be a quorum of at least 10 male heads of households before a synagogue could be formed. So before you could have a synagogue in a town, there had to be 10 male heads of household, uh, according to Jewish tradition. And if these requirements couldn't be met, then faithful Jews were supposed to meet under the open sky near a river or uh, the sea. And so Paul and, and this company walk outside the city on the Sabbath. Uh, there's no synagogue there. And so they walk to the river and they look for some fellow Jews. Uh, and they discover a small group. And interesting to note that Luke says it's all women who are there. And they meet to pray, to worship. They recite uh, some prayers like the great Shema. They might recite that. They would recite some other prayers together. They would worship. They'd read the law and the prophets. And then we continue in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now that little phrase, worshiper of God, is important. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, so what we see in this text here, in that verse, is that Lydia, that phrase, worshiper of God, is important. Uh, in other translations, you might see it phrased as a God-fearer. Uh, and this is a term for a Gentile, so not a Jew, but who saw truth in Judaism and wanted to pursue the God of Judaism. And so because of this, she comes under the influence of the Jews. And so she's there in this group of women uh, by the river. And so the majority of the people who were probably accompanying Lydia, uh, who based on the description that she's a seller of purple goods, is wealthy. Um, the people that were with her, a lot of them were probably family and servants. Uh, she wouldn't have walked around alone. And so there's no doubt that this is a divine appointment. Like this is God orchestrating things to happen. And I, I don't know if you've ever experienced these kind of moments, but they're pretty cool when they happen. Uh, when you are walking in your calling and what God has asked you to do and like you just see stuff happening that you're like, man, there's no other way to explain this. So Lydia was prepared for an encounter with the gospel. Her heart had been uh, being opened by walking through the things she was walking through as a God fearer. And as she listened, it says, quote, the Lord opened her heart. She's converted. She comes to faith in Jesus. And as Lydia places her faith in Jesus, what we read is that not only is she baptized on the spot, but that apparently the joy of her salvation kind of flows out onto everybody else in her household and they're baptized as well. Uh, you see this in a few other places that, that not only we'll see it today, the jailer and his whole household. Uh, we saw this in uh, the house where Peter went, the, the entire household becomes to faith and, and is baptized as well. Now, it may not seem like much here in this part of the story, but if you know the story of the New Testament and then after that, the global church, you know that this moment is a 
incredible spiritual success. Uh, God opened the heart of one woman in a Roman colony, and that city becomes the place where the gospel gets sent out. Uh, one commentator summed up this little moment uh, in, in this way. He said, one woman's heart in Philippi doomed the flag of Rome. I think that's really powerful. And so after this conversion moment, Lydia makes her case and she convinces the, the four mission, uh, the four, the four, foursome of the mission team to stay at her home. And so the word translated prevailed there. She prevailed upon them at the end of verse 15 is the same word that gets used to describe how the disciples, if you know the story of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus, uh, it's the same word that says that the disciples prevailed on Jesus to get him to stay with them. It's a strong word that she kind of twisted their arm to get them to stay with her. Uh, and what we know from later on in the New Testament is, again, that Philippi has a very special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and no doubt that starts with this time that he spends with Lydia and her household and the others here. Listen to the way that Paul speaks fondly of the eventual church in Philippi. Philippians 1.3, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to these Christians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Philippians 4, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You're the only ones that supported me. Right? So this church has a special place. And so things in this, up to this point in these verses are going really well. But you've been... Right, right, walking along with us in the book of Acts, you know that it's going to take a turn. Uh, and this is not how things stay for very long in the book of Acts or in life. And this is the case here, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this is a weird turn of events, right? It's just kind of, what? what? What's going on here? Was this a Christian believer? Who's, she's saying the right things. Wherever the missionaries went, she attracts attention to them. But actually, this is a satanic attack. This is a demonic attack on the work of the gospel. The original Greek behind the phrase, had a spirit, uh, really reveals like a terror uh, that she's involved with. Literally, it reads, she had a Pythian spirit, or she had the spirit of Python or Python. According to the myth, Python was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo and was eventually killed by Apollo. This is according to Greek mythology. Later, the word Python came to mean like a demon-possessed person through whom that god, Python, spoke. And so this girl is demonized. Right, This demon is manifesting itself. She's filled with a demon or maybe maybe demons who are revealing to her uh, in a kind of a clairvoyant way things that probably will happen in the future. And so she's owned by people who are selling her uh, and her work. Most, like I don't mean to be crass, but literally there is basically spiritual pimps that own her. That's what's happening here. So the strategy of our enemy, Satan, and, and if you ever hear me say that, and you're like, what, we have a spiritual enemy? We definitely do. I want you to know from the front, yes, I think that we have an enemy, Satan, and there's spiritual battle happening. His strategy is obvious here. He is trying to subvert the gospel by, by infiltrating it. 
by forming an apparent alliance with the work of Jesus for his own ends, of course, which is to just change it enough, right? Satan loves to distort the gospel just enough to twist it into something that it's not. Just enough to create a deadly heresy. Um, one of my teachers, when I was a kid growing up in school, would say Satan's favorite color is off-white. Right? Now, here, this is really important for us. It's really, this is really important for any of you who ever get involved in uh, any type of ministry where you want to try and influence other people for the gospel. This is really, really important. And this is running rampant through uh, the church, particularly in America right now, when it comes to how pastors try to build a platform and influence people. Okay? The missionary team here could have reasoned this way. Listen, she's telling the truth, right? I mean, her words are true. Why not just let her speak? She'll draw a crowd, and then we can work through that and sort of flip it on its, you know, on its end and then just preach the real gospel. And probably the longer she hangs around us, she's going to come to faith, right? So let's just use this thing in order to build a platform in order to gain an audience to then preach the gospel. But the missions team here in Acts, praise God, does not fall for this bait. Um, maybe they remember that every time a demon like said that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus rebuked the demon and cast it out. He never said, you know what, you're right, why don't you come with me and act demonic and crazy, draw a big crowd, and then I'll use that for my uh, message. No, Jesus always silences them and orders them to leave. And so the, the pressure stays for some days. We see in verse 18, Paul finally respond. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So once again in Acts, we see God's power at work overcoming uh, the powers that are in this world. The girl is set free from demonic oppression. Philippi is now poised to hear the gospel without distraction. And so it's like the wind is at their backs again, uh, or so it seems. In verse 19, we begin to see uh, opposition uh, again. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, okay, translation, their way of making money, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for, for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So now Paul and Silas are in trouble, right? Because they've exercised this demon, which was the girl's owner's source of income. And if you want to find a way to really cause opposition to happen, uh, allow your calling, your mission of preaching the gospel to start touching the economic structure of the status quo. And stuff is going to start opposing you. Things are going to happen. Uh, the historian of the Salvation Army, Richard Collier, uh, said this. Persecution was great from the beginning. Gangs frequently hurled mud and stones through the windows at the preaching in the crowd. The liquor dealers worked hard to have booth 
that's the founder of the Salvation Army, kicked out of East London. The police were no help. In fact, they often broke up outdoor meetings and accused Booth's followers of being the cause of all the trouble. Beatings were not uncommon. In 1889, at least 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted. Some were killed and many were maimed. Even children were not immune. Ruffians threw lime in the eyes of a child of a Salvation Army member, and the newspapers ridiculed Booth. And so he goes on and on to continue to talk about this type of opposition. The gospel of Jesus that came through Paul in the book of Acts had messed with the wallet of these people who owned this girl, and that's always going to get a reaction. So in the coming chaos, what you see in the text is that false charges and like racial innuendos are thrown at Paul and Silas, and they are arrested, right? So now we see our enemy Satan changing tactics. He's going from sort of subversion into just full-out persecution. But now it's, it's so cool to see it's God's turn to take this attack and to do what he always does with this kind of thing and to use it to actually see the gospel spread even more than before in a very subversive and powerful way. There's an old saying in the history of of the church, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's true. That's always been true from Acts until now. Persecution only serves, when Christians stand up under it, under the power of Jesus, it only serves to prove the validity of the gospel of Jesus So watch what happens here, verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, on Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. This was an interesting little tidbit in uh, my study this week. The officials who actually would have punished Paul and Silas were called lictors in Latin. And this is where we get the phrase, get your licks in, uh, which, which is just interesting that that's even in the text here. But this is an absolutely brutal scene. This is absolute brutality. They're, th- this kind of beating would have meant that their backs were absolutely bruised and bloody, wide open wounds. Um, and the jailer, it seems, actually goes a step further than necessary here. Because it says he received his orders and then he put them in stocks, which they didn't order him to do. And so they can't even lie down without their backs that are open wounds now touching the ground, making it even worse. And so to the human eye, this seems like it would be a pretty effective method at sort of stopping the spread of the message of these men. But listen to what happens in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, if you read the history of the church and the history of martyrdom and persecution, this is a common refrain, that people who are in these moments of persecution, they pray, they sing, they worship. And that becomes the witness that God uses to spread the gospel even further. Why in the world would anyone be singing, though, in this kind of condition? Why? They sang because they knew the calling that God had given them, uh, that, that God had called them across the known world into this moment. Right? This is why you see this in the New Testament. They go away rejoicing after persecution, after being beaten or suffering. Why? Because they're like, man, we're actually, we're, we're following God. We know it. 
They sang because they believed rightly. And listen to me, they are prisoners of Jesus. And so Rome actually has no power over them, right? And you need to know that in your life as well. If you follow Jesus, you have been buried and raised to new life. You're not your own anymore. So nothing can happen to you. You're a slave to Jesus, a slave to righteousness, so nothing can actually touch you. They sing because they know that their identity is a witness of the suffering servant. Their identity is not wrapped up in being potentially famous orators. Their identity is wrapped up in being connected and and witnesses to the suffering servant Jesus. Listen to Paul's words to the Philippian jailer, to, to the Philippian church later on in Philippians 1. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Like it has been granted to you. That's the language of gift giving. It has been given to you. Here's a gift. Suffer for the sake of Christ. And if you know and you walk with Jesus, part of what you learn over a lifetime of following him is that suffering actually is a gift. Now, the language in Acts here is really, really important for us. The way the Greek works is to convey that the singing and the praying are continuous. They are continuously praying and singing. Everyone in the jail heard them singing and praying and worshiping. And then came this outward power that God chooses in this moment to respond with. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great great earthquake. The Greek is seismos. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so this guard gets awakened by this noise. He rushes in. He finds all the cells open, which is not good for a Roman jailkeeper. According to the code of Justinian, which is kind of the the laws that they went by, if he would have uh, let a prisoner free and escape, the punishment is execution. So rather than be executed, he's ready to fall on his sword, to die by suicide. But Paul stops him in his tracks, says, no, 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 we're all here. We didn't run away. And the jailer, confused, fearful, asks the question, the most important question that anybody can ask, what must I do to be saved? He he had likely heard about the girl, right? We know that he handled Paul and Silas incarceration and he had heard their songs that night. And so his question is earnest, it's sincere. And he gets an answer that's the same answer that it is today. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's interesting. He asks for a task to do and instead he gets an answer that says, there is no task you can do. Believe in the one who's done the task. Paul didn't suggest a system of life. He didn't suggest to him, here's how you organize your life. He didn't suggest to him a religion to join, right? Importantly, he didn't say, well, go become a Jew, be circumcised, 
and then you can come. No, we covered that. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He simply urges faith in Jesus Christ. And so he is saved that night. The Philippian jailer is saved that night by faith alone through grace alone. The offer made to the jailer that night in Acts is the same offer that's made to you and I and everyone else who's ever walked uh, this world since Jesus, and that is salvation comes by faith in Jesus alone, right? We say this all the time. If it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. So come to Jesus. Look at verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds And he baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So think about the change in relationship, right? This is the passing of the peace, right? Because don't forget, in the church at Philippi, we can assume this jailer was a member now. In the church that happened. And so they all sit down to breakfast now. A person who had put your feet in stocks when your back was beaten to a pulp now invites you into his home to have breakfast. This is how God deals with your enemies. He makes them into your brothers. This is the way of the kingdom. They sit down to breakfast now brothers and sisters in Christ bound together by the blood of Jesus. So God's power had not only opened prison doors, But I think what might actually be harder is he had changed the relational status of these people and made enemies into dear friends. This is what God does by his grace through faith in Jesus. This is why we emphasize as part of our church community. This is what it means to be God's family. So now we get to the last section for today, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Now, this little tidbit about him being a Roman citizen is really important. And especially when you consider the fact that Philippi is a Roman colony that has like direct lines to Rome. You can't do this to a Roman citizen. And so this is really, really important. He continues, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so Paul, as much as he's filled with the love of God and the grace of God, he's tough as well. He refused to be dealt with secretly, not because he wanted to shame the magistrates, no, because he did not want the idea that he and Silas were lawbreakers to be the reputation for the new baby church in that city. A public escort from jail by these ruling magistrates would publish for everyone to see, would shout from the rooftop for everyone to see, these are innocent men who are wrongly accused. And that would actually bring protection to Lydia and her house church that was going to start in the city of Philippi. So Paul, this is so important for us as American citizens. If you are an American citizen, you need to think about this. Paul uses his citizenship. He uses his privilege and his power, not for his own sake, 
He uses it for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel, and he forces the hand of the magistrates. Because he could have pulled the Roman citizen card before he got beaten, but he didn't. He pulled it now for the sake of others so that the gospel could go out and this new baby church could be protected. Now, imagine the joy and kind of the awe at Lydia's house as Paul tells them and Silas tells them about what happened that night, right? Oh, we sang this song and that song and we were praying and then earthquake and the gate opened and like, right? That's a crazy story. Oh, and, and also we had breakfast with the guy that put us in stocks. Pretty cool, right? But don't forget to put some real humanity on the people in this room that Paul's visiting with Lydia. But look at the group of people God brings together in the first European church. You've got Lydia, a wealthy merchant. You've got probably got the girl set free from uh, her demonic possession. You've got the Philippian jailer. You've probably got a few ex-inmates. You've got rich, poor, slave, free, male, female. They're all one in Christ. All the status symbols that the world has dissolve at the door. And that's true for us as well. The, the ground is flat at the foot of the cross, right? And so here it is. The gospel has now infiltrated Europe, but it has come at great personal cost to those who were called and who were sent to take it there. And, and you need to be, I need to be reminded that that's what we are. We are sent ones. We are on mission with Jesus. So that's just a simple question I want to leave us with this morning. We know what our calling is to be witnesses. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. In the Alliance, we talk about being an Acts 1-8 family. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says, wherever we go. And so willingly, we suffer with him for the sake of the good news that that salvation comes by faith in Jesus alone. So the question is, are we willing to follow Jesus on that mission? It's a simple question for us. It's not that profound. Are we willing to go where Jesus calls us no matter the cost? Do we have our identity wrapped up in Jesus, the suffering servant, or do we have our identity wrapped up in the empires of this world and the kingdoms and the ways of this world that would lead us to say, yeah, I know Jesus, you're calling me there, but it costs too much. I don't know if I want to do that. It's going to take me out of this situation or it's going to cause me some personal strife or it's going to, and Jesus is going, trust me and follow me. That's the question for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for um, the, the truths that we can find in the book of Acts. Although we don't find explicit instruction for us in, in this story, we see that there are patterns and ways of following you that we can emulate examples that we can look to and follow. And so, Lord, as we think about what it means to follow you, would you remind us that the path that you walked on was the road to Calvary, and that's the road you're calling us to. That glory came through the suffering. Lord, we confess we'd like to just make an end around around the suffering and get to the glory. But Lord, we know that's not how it works. It's not how it worked for you, Jesus. It's not how it worked for the men we read about today. And it's not going to be the way it works for us. And so would you make us a people who aren't looking for suffering and pain, but who aren't going to step away from it if it means being close to you. And so we thank you again for the privilege, the joy of being able to get together in a room, worship you together, hear from your word, not have any fear of anyone coming and throwing us in any Roman prison. 
Lord, we don't take that for granted. And so, Lord, would you allow us to take those privileges and those advantages and use them for the sake of others so that they might come to know and love you as we have. We pray this in your name. Amen.